Welcome to Tales from the Rec Room, where there's the same little asswipe shit for brains everywhere. I'm your host, Bree Rohde, surrounded by her usual cloud of smoke, and who is with me on the line today? Uh, Bogey Lowenstein. <laughs> and, and, and I'm running for it. But I am actually Kyle Martinak. That's who I am. I, I was going to say, uh, what's, a bo- what's a Bogey Lowenstein? But uh, <laughs> no, uh, welcome to the show, Kyle. I should say welcome back, because uh, this is... A new show, even though it's appearing on the same feed uh, as Peak Show. It's called a Peak Show 2.0. But you are Kyle Martinak, writer, podcaster, general lover of media. Welcome to the first episode of Tales from the Rec Room. Thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me be the first to say welcome this new show. <laughs> yeah, well, it's uh, it was an easy pick because you were the one who came to me with the suggestion. And uh, today, dear listeners, we're discussing, obviously, the movie 10 Things I Hate About You. Um, but up top, I want to share why we're discussing 10 Things. So if you're listening to this, odds are you were a fan of Peak Show, um, which, uh, much like one of the principal actors in this movie, died far too young. But uh, we are still bringing back the same love of nostalgia through Tales of the Rec Room without being tied to the Peak format, because I just found I wasn't having the time to, like, rewatch and watch whole series and like even I felt so embarrassed on the X-Files episode I just didn't have time to do a full rewatch and I was like I don't know what I'm talking about anymore uh so it's Tales from the Rec Room uh it's a discussion on our favorite not just movies TV shows video games and all music the one rule to which we are tied is one or both of the hosts has to have consumed that media via physical media. If I'm being perfectly honest, like this isn't just a nostalgia BJ. This is something I've started and frankly, a lot of people should care about increasingly. Um, being a person who was always a renter who moved frequently, I made no effort to keep up my physical media collection. And now seeing the way various media conglomerates are just showing like shoving all these online libraries like oh they're not vaults actually um these these series can disappear just for like shitty tax shifty ass tax reasons um including one of our shared favorites mighty ducks game changers which is now just gone yeah yeah well we'll never see it's like again uh whatever it was like you know people have differing opinions on it but now we can't even Mm -hmm. argue about it anymore because it's nowhere yeah, absolutely. And how dare you do this to uh, my husband, Josh Duhamel? Like, uh, <laughs> no, it's it's. I think it's just important to promote the collection and preservation of physical media. Um, and I think there's also just something cool about the act of sitting down with a VHS tape or a DVD or a video game cartridge and carving the time out for it, the sense of actually having ownership over something, or even the feeling of a rental period, like that urgency feeling that we felt when we rented a movie and we had three days to watch it. So there's so many aspects of the experience that are so specific to physical media. So this is a celebration of all that. So welcome to the party, pal. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. So as we go forward, uh, Tales from the Rec Room is going to keep one tradition um, from from Peak Show, which is plugs up front. So Kyle, because people usually tune out within the last 30 seconds of a podcast, can you tell us where we can find you online and read and or listen to your thoughts? Uh, yeah, lately I've just been on Twitter and Letterboxd for the most part. Um, I'm still on Twitter. It's it's happening. It's all happening. Uh, but I'm just... It is. I'm at Kyle Martinak on there still, and then Letterboxd, I think I'm at K.R. Martinak, maybe. Uh, Mm -hmm. I do have a pop culture blog at media-sandwich.com, and I've still got a podcast called Media Sandwich, but both of those have been a little quiet lately because I'm finishing up a couple of fiction writing projects right now, so kind of had to put that stuff to the side. I had no idea you were a fiction writer. This is super. Uh, Attempted. I'm I'm attempting. (laughs) Uh, in a yeah. genre that I, I guess I wanted to reach my peak dad, 
to bring back the peak show for a second. Uh, and I'm writing Westerns. That's the genre I've chosen. I think that's great. I Oh, man, I'm that's such an exciting development. I wish you all the best in that. Uh, now, Kyle, you yeah, you brought up the idea of covering 10 things right when I was sort of workshopping ideas for a new show format. Can you, So can you tell me about why it is why you chose uh, or why you had this urge to talk about 10 things? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it was a big movie for me at right at the exact right age. Uh, I think I had mentioned on Twitter, I, I don't know if it was directly to you or not, that I would totally either listen to or record one of those minute-by-minute minute podcasts that those are probably out of style already now anyway, but I would do one mm -hmm. with 10 Things I Hate About You, because it's just such a relentlessly watchable minute-by-minute minute movie. It's got that it Aaron really Sorkin walk-and-talk you know, energy to it. Everybody's going somewhere and doing something. Yeah, they... Like when I say, and we will so get into this, but like they don't make teen movies like this anymore. And I have a few theories as to why it was killed. But one of the things is it is a wildly, not even inaccurate depiction of teens, but just so heightened because like teens aren't that clever. Teens aren't that smart assy. Teens aren't that cynical. But goddamn, it's so watchable because like, it's gonna sound. I don't want to watch people who are just as inarticulate and unsure of themselves and kind of phony as I was in high school. You know. Right. Right. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about contextualizing where and when you first saw this movie. So did you see this within the first year that it came out or afterward? Uh, it must have been within the first year it came out. Uh, it was a new release mm -hmm. at the video store, not a theater mm -hmm. watch. Okay, so, and, and Kyle, we're the same age, right? I was born in 89. Uh, 88, so yeah, right in okay, the same so, area. Yeah. yeah, I was in the fourth grade, about to turn 10 when it came out. So uh, so this was a home rental, very important, DVD or VHS? Um, this, I had to think back and, and remember exactly why. This was among one of the first DVDs that we rented, uh, but I was a rental kid right at that moment where VHS <laughs> rental was a lot cheaper. It was like $2 for a three-day rental of a VHS, and then a DVD mm -hmm. was like six, seven bucks for, could be a one-night rental, you never know if it's a new release, so... Someone's parents had definitely rented the DVDs for, <laughs> for this situation, uh, yeah. And then subsequent re-rentals on my part were VHS every time, because I had a VCR mm -hmm. in my room. It was, you know, I wasn't that ritzy. I didn't have a DVD. I wasn't a little, you know, WHM, <laughs> where boy. it's a little rich boy over here, yeah. <laughs> uh, shout out to friends of the show, Andrew, Steve, and Eric. And Chris, I guess. What up, Chris? <laughs> he, uh, notorious hater of Canada, Canadian uh, fast food, uh, darling Harvey's. You would not believe, uh, I'm sure you've heard that episode by now, you would not believe the Harvey's discourse he and I got into after the show. <laughs> I was like, no, but did you try the onion rings? Oh, I wish I could have been <laughs> a fly on the wall rings. for that conversation. That would have been great. Yeah. Yeah, I was like really, really wound up about it. Harvey's is great. Um, they give like big ass pickle slices. You want to go to a place that has big ass pickle slices. Um, anyway, um, I think I, or I know it was VHS for me. I don't even think my family had a DVD player, but I, like you, had a VHS player in my room. Like my paper route money, I had gotten a, um, a personal TV with a VHS 
player built in. And so when DVD became a thing, I was like, no, I am going to be loyal to this baby. I earned it. Um, and it was like our Friday night tradition of like we go out to family swim at the public pool because that's like the middle class thing to do, right? Yeah. And then you go and you pick up, uh, you pick up a movie rental. I remember also this is a weird and kind of un- unimportant detail, but it was at like the first new video rental place we'd gotten in our town in a long time. We'd kind of had the same like two places to rent movies in our town. Um, And so we got to try this new place that was across from uh, our favorite Chinese restaurant. And I think the only reason we went there was because you could rent a Sega Dreamcast there. And my brother wanted to try. I think that's that's the Sega system that came out around then, around 99. Um, and my brother wanted to try out the Dreamcast. So I took this, like, I was in the fourth grade, about to turn 10. I got to take this teenager movie home. And I felt so fucking cool. So what did young Kyle love about this movie? Uh, well, I mean, this was just one of those movies that was always playing in a communal setting. I I think my first watch must have been either first girlfriend's house or my buddy's house when it was like a double date kind of scenario, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. That's what I remember anyway. My buddy lived right behind the Hollywood video uh, and that was where we spent <laughs> a lot of our time. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was something that uh, I'm pretty sure uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember here. Um, it helped you find your people in high school, or at least it did for me totally. because, uh, I was a drama club nerd and a lot of us could totally grasp onto this movie with kids that, like you said, sound so much smarter and wittier than teenagers actually do. Those are the characters mm-hmm. that you want to play when you're a high school theater kid. You, And then the Shakespeare aspect of it kind of lets some of us, you know, let our freak flags fly and be like, no, maybe... <laughs> Maybe it's okay for me to be geeky about this thing as long as there are like a hundred people watching me do it and none of them seem pissed off. So Absolutely. So that yeah. that was the good part about it was watching with friends. Uh for me, what I loved about it was the banter. Um it, the it was um I'll get into this, but like I really wanted to be Cat Stratford. Um, like once this was my pre-adolescence, but once I kind of got into like middle school era, I really like in kind of an obnoxious way just wanted to be that girl. But it was really big for me as someone who was a tomboy and who was a bit more of an intellectual, uh, frankly, a-hole, um, and who had difficulty fitting in or being seen. Uh, the way I wanted to, I loved the depiction of Cat on screen. Like, I know today, like, the nomenclature for her might be more like, oh, not like other girls or whatever, like, in that disparaging way. But I loved Cat Stratford. I loved how much she stood up for herself. And she was, like, a big cinematic role model for me. Um, and, uh, yeah. So this is a very important thing. What were your go-to movie snacks during that era? Oh, during that era, I mean, I everything because I was a little garbage gut, <laughs> but <laughs> if I wasn't at school doing like theater stuff uh, during the years that this one would have come out, I would come home and probably make myself a grilled cheese. And that would be it would either be a movie or like old episodes of Boy Meets World or something like that. That was <laughs> what I was vegging out to. I feel like around age 10, I had outgrown popcorn, which is funny because now popcorn is like one of my favorite snacks because I realized like popcorn is actually an incredibly light snack. And so I can get like my salty impulses out without feeling awful about it. 
Um, but I think this was around the era where I loved to like do something a little bit indulgent. Like I would take a chocolate pudding cup, but I would slice up strawberries in it and stuff because I thought I was fancy. Oh yeah. And I got to be like, well, I'm eating fruit and chocolate. I'm a grown up. <laughs> so, all right. So contextualizing the the era so i read this fantastic um oral history of 10 things it wasn't quite as detailed as i wanted um i don't know if they just didn't like get enough time with the principal actors and everyone involved but it did kind of help put things into context so screenwriters kirsten smith and karen mccullough were relatively inexperienced screenwriters who came together and began writing a scattershot story in 1996 based on their mutual love of clueless which had of course been inspired by emma and i gotta say like right up front it's really hard these days to secure funding for a movie with like no big actors in mind and your screenwriters are absolute nobodies and oh we attach this like unknown tv director to direct like does that when was the last time that freaking happened at all let alone in the teen genre uh well i'm i don't even know if there is much of a teen genre that isn't like wouldn't be considered tv or straight to streaming at this point so mm-hmm. maybe that is a, a common pipeline now for tv directors to kind of move to features but they're not going to be features that, you know, come out on 2000 screens across America or something like that. So, yeah, I no, not at all. The the funding. Yeah, I can't imagine a movie with this kind of budget coming into theaters. That's this true to genre, this, you know, kind of bare bones and basic teen rom com, which I don't even think is a thing at the box office anymore. Definitely not at the box office, and we'll get into that later, but um, yeah, like, it, it's really interesting because 1999 was, like, the explosion of the high school movie, mm-hmm. um, but we're backing up. So this is 1996, so we're in kind of this post-Clueless world. The script was actually finalized in 1997, shopped at Sundance, and they said, like, pretty much no one liked it. Disney just kind of... Disney did eventually uh, take it, but it's it's hard to compare and look at teen or youth-targeted movies in 96 or 97 because um, teen movies aren't typically high-grossing. So obviously, like, that does, you know... I've I've worked at film markets. I understand like how things get picked up, and of course they're going to look at what's going to make money. Um, the big blockbusters of '97 were Men in Black, Jurassic Park, Lost World, uh, Liar Liar. So there's your first like family movie, Air Force One, um, the 1997 re-edition of Star Wars, and then you kind of get into rom-com territory. You got My Best Friend's Wedding, and then you got Titanic. Um, some some more action, more action, more action. 17th and 18th place respectively were Scream Two and Scream, which like they are teen movies oh yeah they're they're horror but they're teen movies yeah and i um and that is somewhat of a pre i think that is probably the best precursor to 10 things because you have this bitey cynical intellectual kind of script that portrays high schoolers in that very heightened way um plus in 20th you had um i know what you did um, I will say it's a much softer, despite being very actiony, it's a much softer top 20 in terms of having more family and romantic films and offbeat films in the previous year, which was extremely actiony. Um, I didn't take down what the specifics were, but it was pretty much all action uh, in the top 10, save for The Nutty Professor, which is a comedy, but it's an incredibly raunchy comedy. Um, and shockingly, number 10 in 1996 was The First Wives Club. I had no idea that movie was that financially successful. Neither did I. That's nuts. Because uh, I I barely it's remember a great that movie. movie. Is it? Great. I, I'll have oh to give God. that one a try. That's one that I never did. Uh, I'm in my old bitter ladies era, so. 
Hey, that's perfect. Uh, yeah, 96 yeah. was a pretty big year action-wise, like you said. I mean, I think that's the year of the first Mission Impossible. Uh, I, I might be wrong about this. Independence Day, was that 96? Oh, yes, that was the top in 96. I do remember that. Okay, so yeah, that's that's the kind of that's the kind of blockbuster movie that's coming out at that point. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess Titanic is the one, right? That's the thing that I have to imagine the repeat showings of that and the consistent way it made money over the course of like nine months showed that teen girls might be a viable market. Maybe we need to get more things off the ground that are relatively low in budget that could get those repeat viewings. Uh, and then, yeah, this came out right around the same time as like, she's all that in American pie, right? 99 was the sweet spot. Yeah. So I've got th the release. This is post. We've got clueless in 95 Romeo and Juliet in 1996, which I barely count. Cause it's, it's a teen movie, but it's not a quote-unquote high school movie. Right. Uh, Scream in 96, Can't Hardly Wait in 1998, underrated. Very. Uh, vars yeah. And then in 1999, leading up to this release, which was uh, late March, we had Varsity Blues and She's All That in January and Cruel Intentions about a week before. Um, and then shortly after that, you had Never Been Kissed in um, Election, one of my favorite teen movies, uh, American Pie. This is all in 1999 from from Varsity Blues to American Pie and then bring it on a, about a year later. So I looked into it, like what was behind this high school movie explosion? Um, and also 1999, I will add some like darker under the radar absolute favorites of mine, but I'm a cheerleader. Every queer woman loves this movie. Jawbreaker, which I know is a bit more uh, polarizing, but I fucking love Jawbreaker. Yeah. And um, Drop Dead Gorgeous, technically 1998, but still counting. No one watched that movie in 1998 anyway. J Drop Dead Gorgeous is one of those movies that everyone likes retroactively. Um, That's but, when you discover yeah. on cable a few years later, for sure. It's I um, I have a story for how I discover this. I'm saving that for the episode that i very much want to do on drop dead gorgeous yeah, i have so many feelings about that movie but um so part of this was around the late uh the late 90s studio execs were looking at the rapid rise actually of the aforementioned dvd player um it was a similar signal sent by the vhs and vcr industry in the 80s signaling that films could indeed have this long and profitable shelf life after theaters and teens had always shown uh, with their wallets a desire to see themselves on screen with vastly positive reception uh, for movies like the John Hughes high school movies, the 80s Clueless, Heathers. Again, Romeo and Juliet, it's not high school, but they were literal teenagers. Um, and um, these movies were also often produced by fresh acquisitions and, you know, former indie prodcos that got gobbled up by big, big conglomerates like Touchstone and Miramax. They were specifically bought to like spice up Disney and their whole thing was to look for films that were cheap to produce and make a lot of money. So obviously, like you said, the line of thinking is like, let's back this movie because no, it won't make nearly as much as Independence Day, but it'll cost a fraction to produce and we can make a shit ton in home sales. I'd also be curious even to reach out to friend of the show, Eric Peacock, about the role that soundtracks played in these kinds of financial equations. Oh, yeah, especially with teen kids as your primary audience. Sure. I mean, that's how mm -hmm. that's how the majority of my music taste developed when I was that age. Hundo P. Um, so just about the casting, because the script did land at Disney, who allegedly had issues with the fact that Kat was so angry, which I find very funny because why would you order the script and then question the very premise of it? Like, it's literally, she is the shrew 
what do you think a shrew is? Um, but Disney encouraged them to cast James Vanderbeek and Katie Holmes in the roles of Patrick and Kat. Um, Katie Holmes would obviously go on to star in She's All That, like the exact same year. Um, but they were attracted to Julia Stiles' seriousness, which she said had previously cost her role. She has not, she hadn't really been in much before. Um, I really like that for her because, like I said, Kat's my favorite character, but at the same time, I think this is the only movie I've ever enjoyed her in up until the Orphan prequel which I saw uh, like last year, loved her in that. But I find Julia Stiles not a great actress when she's not doing Cat Stratford. I know this is a bit against type. I fucking hate Save the Last Dance. (laughs) It's terrible. It's a a hate watch for me, that movie. Well, you're also a dance instructor, so I'm sure there's a technical (laughs) aspect to that movie that must bug you, right? It's it's actually that I find her character is incredibly unlikable and um, they don't give me anything to root for. But it's also that kind of very sullen um, aspect of Julia Stiles' performance that I don't think works in a role like that because I need to find some empathy for her. And she's written so whiny. And so it just she doesn't do anything to lift what is also a very problematic script. But she's great in this movie. She's so... Like, if you liked the bad girl in high school, she, Kat Strafford was kind of the template for that. Oh, yeah. It it was a different flavor of teen movie character because it wasn't like, oh, she's a nerd. Like, it wasn't, uh, uh, I'm going to get the name wrong, but from She's All That. um, Lainey Boggs. Yeah, exactly. It, It wasn't that situation where it's like, she's got to take her glasses off and then she'll be popular. It was a case of, no, she she knows perfectly well that she's not popular, and she's absolutely cool mm-hmm. with that, because she used to be that, and she's not anymore. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I would see how this would end up typecasting her during that era of her career. Um, mm-hmm. The only other thing that I can speak praise to is the Othello movie that they did with uh, Mackay Pfeiffer, uh, her, oh. and uh, Josh Hartnett as yes. uh, Iago. That was, it was int- it was an interesting use of Julia Stiles. I think it was a skilled deployment of her set of skills, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and gosh, I can't think of three actors who, uh, you know, bringing back to peak show, that was probably their peak. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Josh Hartnett was in uh, Sin City for five seconds, a movie that has also hasn't really withstood the test of time. Mm-hmm. Um Goodness, goodness me. But yeah, like I like Kat as a character because um, unlike Lainey Boggs, who like, the you know, the studio tried to convince me wasn't pretty. Kat was a character who was not an outcast because she was ugly. Everyone knows Kat's very pretty. It's that she rejects popularity and she is a pill. No one likes her because of her personality. And like, believe it or not, like there are girls in high school who have terrible personalities and thus it does not matter how pretty they are because no one liked them. So um so this is kind of a per episode segment where we talk about three to five ways each in which this movie or piece of media affected our media consumption or our regular habits so did this movie send you down any rabbit holes you know how did the chemistry of your impressionable little brain change after you saw this so for me i've got four i haven't added any notes on this but i feel like we're gonna go down these rabbit holes so number one um i developed a major crush on heath ledger Heath Ledger might have been the first male celebrity I ever had a crush on because I didn't particularly like boys when I was young, but Heath Ledger was was an exception. And he was a completely unknown entity at the time. Like, 
he wasn't as like he's very very handsome but he didn't look like the handsome guys that were getting pushed out because the handsome guys were freddie prince jr not to bring everything back to she's all that and like um you know the guys in dazed and confused this he was a little more like he looked he has a face or he had a face that looked like he'd seen some shit and i liked that about him yeah i mean it's it's a really hard character to slip into in one of these teen movies is the dangerous boy who might ride a motorcycle um that kind of thing you know it's very it feels very old tiny even in the era they did that on boy meets world every once in a while where it's like oh this is the the bully and he's just a 50s greaser it's like (laughs) what was it about writers back then they thought that that was still a thing but he pulls it off in a contemporary way that's really cool in this movie uh i'm trying to think the only other things that i must have known him from at the time were uh i think the patriot might have come out before this i'm not sure which I've never seen. I mean, it's fine. I know it's 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 a it, it's a random one to have never seen. But like this got me to go to the to see a Knight's Tale, and oh, even yeah. like I was I was so stoked when I found out he got cast as the Joker, and like because the Dark Knight is still unironically one of my top five favorite movies. Um, you know, people always talk about like. Oh, back when uh, superhero movies were allowed to be made by kind of auteur filmmakers and everyone points to Sam Raimi. I feel like no one gives enough credit to how Christopher Nolan um, took Batman and made it into very much like a crime thriller, a Christopher Nolan movie. Like, And um, Heath Ledger was a perfect Joker. To the, I've, I always forget that he was 28 years old. when he, Like he is now significantly younger than I am now. Yeah. Wow. And, or, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Um, I remember like where I was when I found out he died. I was in my high school film lab working on something on Final Cut and someone was like, hey, did you hear Heath Ledger died? And I just sat there and cried. Um, he has he has something about him where he in this role where he is both like kind of smoldering and mysterious, but also very effervescent. Oh, like, yeah. Whenever he smiles, I'm like, oh, I want to be hanging around them. Um, it's saying yeah. something that he doesn't just have chemistry with Julia Stiles. He has chemistry with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He has chemistry with David yeah. Krumholtz, where it's just like, I would just watch these guys hang out for a minute. Like, we can pause the romance stuff and just have these guys goof off for a hot second. That's kind of the one thing I feel like is missing from the movie is, like, I would love to see more of, like, them forming their little trio of a friendship. Because, like, I love that scene in the cafeteria where they're grabbing the stuff and, like, don't say shit like that. People can hear you because it's like, oh, these guys have clearly developed a little friendship and I would just like more of that. Uh, so number two, I gained a huge appreciation for Larry Miller. Oh yeah. Um, I think I was I was definitely too young at the time to even really know who Larry Miller was. Um, but at the time, I think he had a few other little like side charactery roles. And at first, of course, because I was ten, I was like, "Oh, it's the dad from Ten Things I Hate About You." And um, then shortly thereafter, I started watching Seinfeld, and I know he only had the one actual guest part on Seinfeld but knowing that he had been close with Larry David he had been considered for the role of George I find like Larry Miller just brings this wonderful belligerence to any role he does while also constantly seeming extremely tense um and yeah I feel like just as we've had this I mean he's always been a great actor but like succession made kind of my generation realize how great Brian Cox is um I want a Larry Miller sans I really do. No, I agree. I think he's great in this movie. He brings just a little bit of a little bit of energy and mustard to it where, you know, the kids are all speaking very adult. It's that line from Clueless. You all talk like grown-ups. 
uh, <laughs> it feels that way. And then enter enter Larry so that he can judge it up with a little bit of old timey comedy. You know, if he's just doing a bit of business with a piece of gym equipment and it gets away from him. <laughs> It it gives a great undertone to the rest of the dialogue that, you know, it, it it gives a little pep in your step to watch something like that. He's ah he's great. He he knows exactly yeah. what he's doing in every scene. Um, so, yeah, like I like the way that the dad character is written as well, because and like not to be all like, oh, movies these days, but a lot of movies, especially those targeted at younger people, they feel like they have to explain over and over like this is why the dad is the way he is. And really like. They don't over-explain it, but you do get that one scene where he is like, hey, by the way, being a single dad is hard. And um, right. they, they don't have to hit the beat over and over for you to get it. And yeah, I like it. Uh, number three for my rabbit holes, this is when my music taste started getting a touch quirkier. Like I... I grew up listening to oldies with my dad, so I already was a little bit not like other girls. Um, but this, uh, because of the... And not even... Not even really ska. I would call like Save Ferris is very much like baby's first ska. Um, but goddamn, I fell in love with Save Ferris after this. Um, you know, Letter to Cl- Letters to Cleo's cover of I Want You to Want Me introduced me to Cheap Trick, which I really enjoyed. Like I, I did buy the soundtrack. This was fantastic. And I also yep. like this was my first instant instance of knowing like, oh, girls can affront bands with boys in them. And that was what led me to get into uh, singers like Liz Fair, PJ Harvey, um, Courtney Love, everyone that I mentioned, especially Alanis. Well, I mean, I was already somewhat into Alanis, but because um, I had a sister who was born in 84. So of course I was into Alanis. But yeah, this was what kind of led me to the like, girls can rock era of my life. And liking stuff that was you know, hooky, because Save Ferris is very hooky, but ultimately um, just a bit different than what I had been at the time hearing on the radio, um, because I was hearing mostly country and pop on the radio, and so um, this was probably what started me down my most obnoxious iconoclastic music consumption phase. Um, oh, yeah. And then, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, the, mu- the, mu- the music stuff is, uh, the, the soundtrack is terrific, it really holds up, and... Yeah, I it, you're right. Uh Save Ferris really is baby's first ska, but it's a great entryway into ska along with having a friend who's in band. You put those two things mm-hmm. together, this movie, it's like, "Oh, hey, let me play you some things." And before you know it, I have Real Big Fish on every iPod that I've ever owned. Mhm. Well, uh if uh listeners were to listen to my episode on Soundtracker, you would hear how I exactly how I feel about Real Big Fish, which is to say, I'm for them. Um, but, uh, and number four, like I said, <coughs> pardon me. Number four, like I said, I wanted to be Cat Stratford. Um, I, you know, like nine and 10, especially for girls is a weird age because you're still very much a kid, but people around you are starting to show like pairing off and liking boys and liking makeup and liking dressing up. And I wasn't ready for that. I was very much a late bloomer child. I, you know, resisted puberty and the things that came with it for a long time. And Kat made me feel like, oh, okay, like I don't have to become that when I'm a teenager. I don't have to become into boys. I do not have to become um, an overly soft, delicate princess. I can still be smart. I can still be a smart ass because I was a smart ass child. Um, 
Yes, it also made me overly aggressive. Like there, there are so many little quippy one-liners. Like when she says to Joey, "Like, did your hairline just recede?" Like, I used to use that on guys. It was, of course, not effective because we were like eleven years old <laughs> and they didn't know what a receding hairline was, and I didn't deliver it with nearly the charm and pizzazz of Julia Stiles. But I mean, I did spend most of high school kind of refining that persona, and I, I have to say, I have very few regrets about that. Yeah, no, I, <laughs> uh, I, I have definitely pulled the thing where I've used a line from a movie and the context is right, but we're just all 10, 15 years too early for the joke to land. Uh, so I appreciate mm-hmm. that for sure. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's an influential movie, not just because I was the one watching it, but because everybody was watching it. Uh, so yeah, the punk and ska, the, the punk covers uh, or ska covers of pop music from, you know, my parents' era is still something that I'm interested in. I've The majority of Newfound Glory albums that I've listened to are just their covers of movie songs, which mm-hmm. my brother finds so irritating. He's like, just listen to the original. I'm like, no, this one's good. I, you know, who, who doesn't like uh, Kings of Wishful Thinking from Pretty Woman as done by Newfound Glory? <laughs> that's a winning combination but uh yeah i mean yeah the 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 big thing was uh that i i really believe that an earlier draft of this movie that made it pop for for the studios would have been how much of the shakespeare was written into the the screenplay we've got the the sonnet that the teacher gets to rap we've got her poem at the end of the movie which hits people are exactly our age in a special place emotionally uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and even, uh, Krumholtz, uh, wooing her friend using the Shakespeare stuff, you know, the clothes and all of that good stuff. That's, it's fun. It's, uh, and, and it gave me enough confidence to be like, okay, well, if these smart teens from this movie who are all at the most good looking point in their entire lives, all at the same time, <laughs> as we've all seen in that meme, um, if they're okay to be into Shakespeare this much, maybe I can. And before you knew it, I was, I was hanging out with people who we all knew what character from Shakespeare we were born to play. I was Sir. T- Wh- which character is that for you? Uh, Sir Toby Belch from, uh, from Twelfth Night, which I did play when I was 16 and I had my head shaved, not like in total, not in a horseshoe, but I shaved in a comb over that I had to rock as a 16 year old for like six months. Uh, there's a picture of it in the yearbook. Thank you, whoever made that decision. Because that's the, the main <laughs> photo everyone will remember of me from high school. But, you know, I was on stage and I was pretending to be a drunk, but I was spouting poetry while I was doing it. And people laughed. And I I realized, oh, I guess this is where me being a 16-year-old, 40-year-old man will actually come to my benefit. So mm-hmm. that, that was the big one for me. Here's a here's a question and i should know this as someone who works in publishing and someone who is also an english major but are shakespeare's plays public domain like do high schools have to get have to pay a licensing fee to perform them you know i'm not sure i know all about having to pay the licensing fees for disney owned properties because we did those a couple of times but as far as shakespeare goes i'm not really sure how that works i think because i you might have to pay royalties to somebody theater school and yeah 
Uh, I went to a really serious theater school, and uh, and we're going to talk about high schools that have a lot of money, which this school appears to. Oh, yeah. oh my God, what a gorgeous building that was. But um, yeah, like that's why anyone who's done theater in high school knows what it's like to do low rent plays, because that's like you realize like as you get older, like, oh, my God, plays cost money to license and to perform. Um, and uh, for for us, it was things like Bugsy Malone, which Bugsy Malone can be played by kids 11 and under. It absolutely cannot be played by 16-year-olds. That's what we learned. It's completely unfunny when it's performed by teenagers. Uh, and things like New Canadian Kid, which is a real play. It's scripted gibberish. I suggest you look it up. It was one of the most difficult plays I've ever had to do. But these are these are nothing plays. That's And um, at one point uh, after I left my school, which we were the Wildcats, who will we beat? The Wildcats! Um... The, after I had graduated, we did do High School Musical, which I imagine cost an arm and a leg to uh, to license. But I'm just wondering why, if we were as serious as we were, we never licensed a Shakespeare play. And I'm guessing it's because we were actually terrible actors who couldn't handle it. Well, that, that never stopped anybody at the high school level, but... Uh... Yeah. I was going to say that never stopped anyone at the professional <laughs> level. Speaking of Andrew Keegan, no. Um, Ooh, fair enough. No, you know what? He is actually really good in this movie, but it is still so dark to think of the fact that he's like fucking implicated in cult shit now and like really abusive and dark cult shit. Like it's not something I even feel like joking about. It's just a really sad thing. Yeah, he's uh, he, he's a major scumbag. All right. From the sounds of things. But um <clears throat> he was another that I thought I had saw him at least on some like teenager TV show at the time. Well, I think he was on Party of Five, was which he? I never watched. Yes, that so would he make was, sense. He, yeah, he and Joseph Gordon-Levitt were kind of the most like known entities who were cast in this. Um, and even Levitt, like he was, n- none of these people had ever led anything before. Um, and I would say actually, Crumholtz was a known entity, um, but like. Uh, also the biggest one, like Gabrielle Union, she is such a, such an interesting actress to me. First of all, she's 50. She looks amazing. She looks incredible. But like she spent until she was 30, just constantly playing like the black best friend or the black frenemy or like the sassy black girl and like always a side character. Um, there is a few fantastic, uh, pieces I've read on like kind of justice for chastity in this movie, um, which makes sense because the character of Chastity in Taming of the Shrew is someone who really gets the short shrift. But like, as much as she's kind of portrayed as a bitch in this movie, going back and reviewing it as an adult, this is not something I thought about at the time I watched it. It's like, Bianca was kind of horrible to Chastity. She kind of just sticks her with like all the shit and abandons her when it's convenient. And, uh, you know, the fact that Joey takes her as like, the second choice even to the prom i'm like what a what a tragic character that i don't think was particularly well written because i don't know if we're meant to feel sorry for chastity um but upon viewing it as a 34 year old i certainly feel sorry for chastity yeah yeah that's uh it's interesting you bring that up because i did a little bit of homework and i uh discovered that there they did turn this movie into a sitcom in like oh five uh on freeform i think it was uh, here in the states yeah. i don't know what it would be in canada i pirated it at the time uh, it was more around like i think 20 it was post recession but it was when i was still oh, in university okay. 
It was okay. A lot of people did like it. I kind of didn't care for it. I think I watched maybe the not even the first season, like the first half of the season. I was like, okay, I, I can see where this is going. I like the original characters better, and I just never committed to it. Yeah. So did I, you end up watching this? I just watched the pilot, and the pi- very much so, uh, I can see where this is going. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's very strange, some of the choices they've made with characters, though, in order to broaden them a little bit for TV. Um, Joey, they've decided to make less of a, you know, out-and-out asshole, and they just kind of made him a dunderhead. And mm-hmm. his, it's like, oh, he's the quarterback, but he's quitting the team to become a model. Modeling is his actual passion that we're supposed to endear ourselves to. And that felt strange, probably just because, you know, having Keegan in my head with that character, I don't want to empathize with him. Um, but, <laughs> but Chastity is the out and out villain of the pilot. She is the, you know, cheerleading captain or something. And Bianca's trying to endear herself to her. And, it was a very strange flop from her being, you know, a fairly supportive side character through most of the movie. And then that, you know, turn at the end when she's the second choice to prom. Uh, yeah, in, in the pilot, she's very much the queen bee, you know, in Mean Girls terminology of the mm. episode. And I thought that was a strange choice. I didn't really think that this plot needed a villain character. I mean except for Joey. So that that change was yeah. odd. Well, because it's always easy to make a girl the the mean character, you know? Um we we like goofball males. We really do. Especially in that era about 10 years ago. Now, like I don't know, maybe it was the new girl or Parks and Rec that made it more fun to root for goofball women, but like there weren't a lot besides and if there were, they didn't lead shows. It was Phoebe who, you know. Um Right, exactly. But, yeah, um, I like I found I forget. I think it was maybe four or five episodes in. Uh, I just realized what they were doing with Bianca was in this series was they actually made her quite stupid. And one of the things I always found is a weird read of that movie is Bianca's not stupid in the movie. Not at all. Right. Um, you know, I like some of my some of the best one liners from that movie come from her. Like one of my favorite quotes is like, I like the white. It's more pensive. Damn, I was going for thoughtful. And just the look on her face like um, that a lot of people think of her as dumb and she is not. Like she's Kat's sister. Her father's a, an OBGYN. She's probably pretty academic. Like, um, aside from, I guess, the uh, overwhelmed, underwhelmed discussion, um, which that's just a funny line to me. But like, oh, yeah. yeah, she's a smart she's a smart character. And so I don't like that they kind of downplay her. They also like, um, you know, we talk about things that haven't aged well or whatever. And a lot of people say, oh, Cameron is too much of a nice guy. He's too much of a nice guy. I don't necessarily... Uh, I don't read it that way. Maybe it's because I'm getting grouchy in my old age, but in the series, he certainly is. He's kind of this like, why doesn't Bianca like me? Well, do you remember who plays Cameron in the series? No, I do not. <laughs> it is cousin Greg himself from Succession. It's Nicholas Braun. Oh, oh my gosh. What? Yes. <laughs> and and here's I'll do you one better. Who plays Patrick in the series? It's Ethan Peck uh star trek strange new worlds version of spock yes he is, wow he, he's very much playing a spock version of patrick in the pilot at least he is yeah. absolutely emotionless and i'm like that's really weird coming off of just watching heath ledger play it as 
Like, he is Smiley Joe in that movie. You can't keep a grin off his face in it. He's having fun through the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, that's what I like about Patrick is he's kind of a little troll. Um, <laughs> I, I, him and like, just him stabbing the frog, I think. Or like, again, great re- line reading. Thanks to Andrew Keegan, who I begrudgingly admit is great in this movie. Uh, I had some great duck last night. What? <laughs> or just like, you know, things like him drawing boobs on a um on a tray, on a cafeteria tray. I always wanted to do that at my cafeteria. I thought like <laughs> this is an easy thing I can get away with. Just draw a pair of boobs and leave it. But all in every school I went to, all the cafeteria trays were always very dark. And so you couldn't easily draw it with Sharpie. But like that was probably on purpose. Me. God damn it. They they knew that all the kids were gonna draw boobs. Um exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, okay. So let's let's talk about modern equivalent, kind of like. And um, important question I always look to ask with some of these episodes is, what is the modern equivalent? And I'd say looking at anything from 2016 to later, equivalent to this piece of media. So, like we talked about, there has been such a death of the high school movie in these days, like especially, um, especially in theaters. But like, I was talking about this with friend of the show Frederick Blickard, and I think immediately. After this short period of the explosion of the high school movie, you know, and Bring It On, Sugar and Spice, there was such a softening of teen movies, especially the ones directed at girls. Like, boys still had American Pie, which for the record, girls enjoyed too. I love American Pie. Um, Like, this is PG-13. This is a hard PG-13. Like, things like Alice and Janney's porn novel and stuff and his... uh, Reginald's quivering member. Um, but soon after, you had more sweet things like 13 going on 30 and like Freaky Friday, a Cinderella story. And like, this was the last roar of the biting, slightly mean spirited TV, like, or uh, teen movie of this era. Like, you did have Mean Girls in 2004. Um, and even then, I think Mean Girls really stood alone. Um, much like uh, we discussed, you know, with Liz in our Pop Divas episode, the Poptimism movement, there's this movement to be like, okay, like, just because a, a movie is a bubblegum chick flick doesn't mean it shouldn't be critiqued like a real piece of art. And I'm like, yeah, but stop making shitty movies directed at young women. Like, I shouldn't have to pretend that a Cinderella story and Crossroads are good because no one is making movies for teen girls. The fact is, I think a lot of teen girl movies or just teen movies are not as good anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you're you're definitely right about a uh, softening of the genre in at very least the ones aimed at girls. I mean, I'm thinking of things like, you know, even this movie or The Princess Diaries versus American Pie. Oh, Holy yeah. crap, what a what a juxtaposition that is. Mhm. And I think I, you know, we talk about like how realistic is this depiction of high school? Like it's an incredibly heightened depiction of high school, not even unrealistic, but super heightened and dramatized because no one like people talk about the, all these like gritty high school things like euphoria and 13 reasons why and stuff and like being a realistic portrayal of high school. And like, I don't want a fucking realistic portrayal of high school, which first of all, like I went to a high school in a in a town that was riddled with organized crime, coke and meth. And my high school was still extremely boring. Like, yeah, it, no, you don't want a realistic portrayal of high school. But I was also thinking, like, was the difference us? Was the difference that we were older? Because, like, I feel like the people who remember 10 things most fondly are people who are more our age. We were pre-adolescent when this movie came out mm-hmm. and less people who were actually in high school. And so I think, like, is that why I always found the movie A Cinderella Story 
very obnoxious because I was already in high school at the time and I understand, okay, high school doesn't actually work like that. There's not these hard cliques. Like as much as, you know, people are very mean and classist in high school, like no one's like going out of their way to pull big pranks on the loser girl and stuff. And so is it just that for us, like 10 things presented a bit of a fantasy world of high school and like now it's impossible for us to look at high school movies the same because like oh yeah like it doesn't really work like that or whatever yeah no i mean and especially the uh the groups that are shown off in the opening montage of this movie like the cowboys the white rastas uh <laughs> i think it's kind of self-aware in that sense like i always yeah. like, i thought the cowboys line was really funny because it's like you've got the white rastas which is already kind of exaggerated i mean i'm from northern ontario and you still get people who act like they're black when they have like there are a lot of people up in my hometown who have literally never met a black person um and uh so that is semi-realistic but again heightened but then just like the line like these guys are let me guess cowboys and like <laughs> i feel like it's meant to be heightened and kind of weird and i almost appreciate the randomness of it because it's 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 little way of winking at you and saying you're watching a movie by the way yeah you very much that's mm. uh that that's where it skims the line of being a little cartoonish in a way that it needs to to show yes these the, the idea that high school is separated out into these groups this way is a little bit of a manufactured piece of nonsense but you know here's Here's a gimme. Here's here's a way to show that we're winking at you with it. Yeah. And, you know, like uh, like this movie, uh, the setting of this movie, you are from the Pacific Northwest. Um, mm. And so I I always loved watching movies either set in the Pacific Northwest or set in California because seeing how much people were able to have parts of their high school campuses outside, like an outside eating area and like separate buildings and stuff outside lockers. Like, outside, really outside like I mean, it is in California, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely not here in I'm in Oregon, which is in between Washington State and California. So it's, mm -hmm. you know, we're we're not big enough to be Seattle. And we're not, you know, perfectly California. But as far as the weather goes, no, outdoor lockers is an insanity. It rains here. <laughs> It rains here 10 months out of the full calendar year, and you never know when it might crop up during the summer, too. So we... And this movie is set in Seattle, like the notoriously yeah. rainy Seattle. Yeah, and, um, and it's uh, definitely it's definitely shot during a beautiful spring. Uh, and they're, they're going all over the place to, to show you the different landmarks of the city. They're using their location perfectly. Uh, it makes Seattle look cool, and I like that there's even a little nod in Bianca's room where she's watching the real world Seattle as if to kind of mm -hmm. na nail that down. Like, yes, we're we're trying to glamorize a city that's not typically glamorized. It's usually, you know, the setting for, if not a music biopic, then a serial killer story. And that's about it. Yeah, this was kind of the last gasp of, uh, at least from a Canadian perspective, of hearing about Seattle, because I felt in the 90s, I couldn't stop hearing about Seattle, but definitely in a musical sense. Um, and so I, it did kind of make sense to set a teen movie there. And I think we brought this up on our Judd Apatow episode. Like, I'm I'm so sick of movies set in LA. And it's like, the, these are clearly the product of writers who have been writers for so long, which again, like get more scripts from unknown people and we might finally see a movie fucking set in Ohio or something. <laughs> um, but like, it, 
LA is such an incredibly specific place, and I don't think LA writers realize that um, because they think they're writing like an everyman type place. And it's like, no, there's so much specificity to LA. I just want to see a movie fucking set in Vermont or some shit. Like, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. An- another teen movie uh, from the era which set itself apart by being set in a place like Idaho was Napoleon Dynamite. I feel like I love Napoleon Dynamite. I just love by shooting movie. it in that in uh, Idaho like that, it gave it such specificity that made it relatable. Uh, the fact that mm. everything looks like it's from the seventies or so, and it's just been kind of run down by time, gave that an authenticity to it that uh, my friends really appreciated. We're not, you know, Idaho and Oregon are apples and oranges, but. You know, you can you can relate if you've ever lived in the area. You there are places here where you can step outside and look around, and it's just blank beige prairie in all directions. Mm-hmm. And you know, there might be one person on the block who has a decent Wi-Fi signal, and the rest of you know everybody else has never heard of a computer before. That's you know just about an hour away from Portland. That's the magic of the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I, apparently Mormons love that movie. By the way, Napoleon Dynamite. Um, <laughs> the the writers are mormon so mm-hmm. um but yeah with so with 10 things and thinking about like teen movies and especially again the really bitey clever kevin williamson teen movies um i can't help but feel like this type of movie was killed by the super spoof like what i find interesting is i see so many people talking about the um walk down the stairs reveal as being such a cliche during this period when really it happened once and she's all that Twice if you count Twilight, but Twilight was nearly a decade later. Um, I haven't seen Twilight. I've just been corrected on that matter. Like, um, it happened in Twilight. Okay, shut the fuck up. I'm not watching Twilight. Um, but yeah, like, um, it often gets misattributed to this movie for some reason when, no, like, they, these girls don't have a walk down the stairs reveal. Like, I like that Kat fucking drives herself to prom. Like, that's, and again, Kat Stratford, my juvenile hero, but like, the walk down the stairs prom reveal was probably parodied more than it was actually used in movies. But I think the super spoof era made a lot of teen movie makers very cognizant of and scared of cliches, which led to this very self-conscious filmmaking. And I'd even say that Mean Girls shows some self-consciousness with this need to be like a little self-referential and meta in its humor. So. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, they got a lot more cynical as a genre after not another teen movie kind of blew up their, you know, the, the whole genre's spot on not just like, Oh, we're, we're still kind of doing the same stuff from the John Hughes era, but you know, the, 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 the spoof movies also just overtook it as the go-to genre for teens to see as well. Mm -hmm. You know, we went from movies like this being the, everybody's getting together to watch a movie in a basement type thing to, you know, disaster movie, or I, I'm trying to remember the others that were. Uh, my, they were all the scary movies, yeah. Yeah, uh, my my stepsister, who's a couple years younger than me, I was, I must have been midway through college, and she was in high school, and trying to talk me into, no, you know, epic movie is the best movie of the year. And I'm like, okay, but is it is it because you and your friends had a great time watching it, or is it a good movie? And we kind of had a stare down over that. So for sure, (laughs) I don't think her gener there was, you know, because all of the fun teen movies during her era were 
movies that you couldn't get into as a teen, like super bad. Like you, you can't go see that because it's rated R. But all of those oh, spoof see, movies this were PG thirteen. I think it's worth the border. I mean, not that you you and I are grizzled old old people now, but um, it would have been worth a border crossing into Vancouver because the Canadian movie rating system is so much better. A lot of things like there is an R rating in Canada, but is equivalent to like an NC-17 oh. uh, in Canada where like no one under 18 can see this. That usually, usually movies that are rated R in the US, they are rated 14A. Uh, in Canada, which means you can see it with an adult um, or a person over eighteen, as long as you're fourteen, which is much better. Like I got, I I got into super. I think Superbad might have come out just after I turned eighteen, anyway. But like I was going to see those movies because I had an older brother, and we'd love to go see those movies together. Like I actually think the Canadian movie rating system has always made so much more sense than uh, uh, than uh, the the American because like. Uh, we don't have a PG thirteen. Most PG thirteen movies in uh, in the US are just rated PG in Canada because mm. it's like, yeah, whatever, you'll be fine. Like, yeah, we uh, what we lack or what we uh, what we have in terms of Big Brother gun control, we make up for in the wild west of TV mo- of, of movie viewing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds like paradise for a teenage me. I think so- somebody put something on Twitter that was like, "What was your first R rated movie?" and I had to. I got very scientific with it and realized that I think the first R-rated movie I didn't go to with my parents or my older sibling who, you know, was of age to buy the tickets. I had to sneak into it and it was uh, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one to be first. Um, Which, like... Again, that's probably that's kind of what teen movies became is like the stoner comedy. Right. Um, Yeah. So in my searching for a modern equivalent of 10 things, I found myself becoming like majorly old man yells at cloud. One, I find like teen movies, like I said, they're no longer getting theatrical releases. And like, I can only rant about Marvel movies so much. And this podcast is going to really lend itself to that. So I need to check myself. But like, I'm gladly, you know, we got to see a Julia, a Julia Roberts, George Clooney rom-com in, in, the, and even like the movie Bros, which I saw in theaters at my little independently owned uh, local cinema uh, in the last year. And that felt like a real return to my childhood. But still, I don't know if that's going to signal anything for teen movies. Um, the one thing I found is I initially settled on Sierra Burgess is a Loser, which is a Netflix original. Um But then I found myself getting really frustrated and probably a bit unfairly with teenage audiences these days because, like, I think one of the things I found, like, 10 things, if it premiered in 2023, like, because we already get things about, like, oh, has this movie aged well? And the biggest difference would be the social discourse and, like, this promotes an unhealthy relationship because Kat forgave Patrick too easily. Like, right. Which for, and, and from a human perspective, she shouldn't have forgiven Patrick. That's an incredibly dehumanizing thing to do. But, like... Did I care at 10? Did I care at 16? No, because like I was thinking about Sierra Burgess as a loser, which I don't have you seen that movie? I haven't, no. It's a sweet little movie. It's fine. Like I said, I think I'm too old for teen movies now. Um, but all I could think about how when that movie came out, people were excited to see it because like, oh, it's Barb from Stranger Things. She gets a movie. And like it was nice to see a girl who wasn't a size two leading a movie. But um, people decided the movie wasn't good because Sierra is unsympathetic. And I think that's the kind of issue that I have with a lot of teen audiences is um, they they think that a character has to be 
sympathetic in or can and can never be unsympathetic in order for the movie to be good like that that's the frustration i have with a lot of teen tired comedies and i mean like true comedies is that they almost always seem to have to be morality plays like if a character does something bad there has to be a scene talking about why what they did was bad and Mm -hmm. they have to earn their forgiveness and it sounds almost like writers anticipating audiences complaints like i said i know i'm really old man yells at cloud about this but um and and there are some aspects of 10 things that literally haven't aged well, like talking about the fact that you have so few black characters and like chastity is kind of treated like shit. Um, you know, there are things that you need to modernize, but I just think the fact that none of the characters are great people when you really break it down, we didn't worry about that kind of stuff in 1999. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, even even in some of the lesser uh, teen comedies of the era, you were you were pretty much on board with them because they were the lead character. It didn't it didn't matter as much whether or not they saved a cat, uh, to use the parlance of our <laughs> times. Um, as far as teen movies now, I mean, yeah, there's not much to go on for theatrical releases. But I stumbled across one. Speaking of a Stranger Things alum, on Paramount Plus, it's a pretty decent movie. It's uh, called Honor Society, I think. And the the Never tra- heard of it. Uh, the true lead of the movie is uh, the daughter from the Nice Guys, who I quite liked in that movie. So, and my and my kids were kind of pushing like, "Oh, let's watch this one. It's got Dustin from Stranger Things. They love that kid. Who doesn't?" Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Okay, fine. You know, it's on Paramount Plus. It's probably some Nickel straight to Nickelodeon kind of thing." And I turn it on, and that was a mistake to watch with my kids. It's quite adult. It's uh, oh. <laughs> It's kind of like uh, election for Zoomers in spots. Uh, oh. Yeah, it's it's got quite a bit of uh, conniving planning. Kyle, remind me, how old are your kids again? Oh, uh, ludic- ludicrously young. They're going to be nine and seven this summer. So, you know, I mean, granted, I've let them watch Stranger <laughs> Things. I'm the world's okayest dad, uh, which <laughs> that's something that rolled off of my parents just letting me watch whatever I wanted as a kid. It's mm-hmm. it's not a flawless system, but, uh, you know, I slip now and again. I'm just like, yeah, sure. This looks like something that we could watch together and we can stop if it gets too intense for you, which typically we don't have to. But this mm-hmm. was they got bored of it because it's just teenagers talking. No monsters came out or anything. Uh, no one drew a dick on anyone's face. No one drew a dick on anyone's face, but it does feature Christopher Mintz Plass from Superbad as the oh he's still kicking he is he's the slimy guidance counselor who everyone's vying for his recommendation for a scholarship and he may or may not be angling for a romance with a student so you're waiting for him to get kicked in the balls by the end which thankfully the movie comes down hard on people for stuff like that it's it's a hard-hitting teen movie but it's very sharp dialogue and it's got actually a surprising amount of good plot twists in it. So mm-hmm. I, I would, I would yeah. say take it with a heaping handful of salt though, because it goes hard. <laughs> I'm I'm good for movies that go hard. Like I said, I think a lot of teen movies haven't necessarily gone hard enough and they, they're just, they're just kind of entrenched in, entrenched in this sort of like apologetic nature and like to be fair i work with teenagers a lot and i think a lot of teenagers i look at them and i'm like teens 
maybe I just wasn't hanging around with good people, but they're so much, they're much better people than when we were teen, than we were when we were teenagers. Like they're so considerate. They are so like, they, they ask your friggin' pronouns before, before you like, you know, start working with them. They're, they're so thoughtful compared to how we were. And mm. so maybe, maybe me complaining that like, oh, you can't have a movie these days where all the characters are unsympathetic. Like maybe that's a good thing. But also I don't think either of us are any worse of people because we grew up liking this movie. I'm just saying that I do not think there is a modern equivalent to 10 things. Um, I like, I was even looking at from the angle of like a, a take on a classic play or novel and the last mainstream example I could think of was Easy A, which was like more than 10 years ago. Yeah, that was like, what, 2011? Easy A is a great one. Yeah, I was in uni. It, it was a great movie, though. It is. Yeah, no, that's uh, that that's a great one thinking about just like, you know, a t- not just a teen movie, but also Emma Stone as, you know, anchoring the entire movie just with her name on the uh, above the title. I wish we had gotten more of those. I wish we could have gotten at least five more of those the way we did with Lindsay Lohan. Oh my god, yeah. She kind of like stepped in when Lindsay Lohan kind of, you know, went through some unfortunate stuff and uh, kind of picked up the torch from her to be like the cute, like kind of spunky redhead that everyone liked, which I always, my favorite fact when people say like, oh, isn't it funny how Kirsten Dunst dyed her hair red to play a Spider-Man love interest and Emma Stone dyed her hair blonde to play a Spider-Man love interest. Emma Stone is not a natural redhead. Mm-hmm. She's blonde. Yep. Um, but looks way better as a redhead though. Like, yes, she, she I would and agree. Lindsay Lohan, <laughs> yeah, played, played very big parts in myself and many other straight men and queer women falling in love with redheads. Um, so we're getting back to a peak show tradition because I love a good lightning round. Um, we have the 10 things I hate about you lightning round. Kyle, are you ready? I think I'm ready. Let's do it. Yes. All right. So who would you rather date, Kat or Bianca? Kat, for sure. A lot more interesting <laughs> things to talk about. Interesting things to talk about for certain. I, I did almost go for Bianca because when I look at Bianca, I'm like, oh, she challenges uh, guys almost just as much as Kat does. Um, but in the end, I think I would have more fun with Kat. I think she is into the things I am into. She's into live music. Like another thing, you talk about high school cliques. No one points out Kat's a jock. Kat That's is a varsity true. soccer player. We see her playing soccer once and talking about soccer once, but other than that, this movie is peak soccer season and there is like nary a soccer scene to be found beyond the the one. But yeah, Kat is into what I'm into, therefore love Kat Stratford. So who would you rather uh, have take you on a date, Cameron or Patrick? Uh, I would actually go with Cameron. Uh, he seems like a man who plans out the date. He is so adamant that they go on that sailing trip. That is right. (laughs) It is a through line that exists through the whole, he's thinking about it during scenes where it doesn't even come up. You can tell. So, uh, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. The payoff is very good. I also like, I I am also going to go with Patrick. I like a, or sorry, with Cameron. I like a nervous fella. I have most of my life dated nervous fellas. And um, I think like, he's so cute. And this is why like, I cannot get behind the modern criticism of, oh, Cameron's a nice guy who feels entitled to Bianca. He kind of doesn't. Like the shitty thing he does is he is the one who conceives the whole plan. So Mm -hmm. he does deserve like a bit of finger wagging for that. But there's a huge difference between being a nice guy and being an entitled guy and just having a crush on someone. He just has a crush on Bianca. That is an incredibly harmless thing. Um, and the fact that he is 
like so gentle with her and is so thoughtful all the time. And I'm like, oh, he's going to grow up to be a good little man. Um, well, okay, and, so and to, your, to your point oh, earlier, sorry, sorry uh, to, to your yeah. point earlier, there is more to Bianca than people assume. And he does actually see that at first. It might just mm-hmm. be his infatuation with her. But by the end of the movie, he genuinely is interested in the things that she has to say. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's something that uh, it's something that is there, I think, because of their chemistry, too. The two of them are so cute together. Yeah. So who's your favorite supporting character? I mean, Michael Crumholtz. Yeah, Crumholtz I... <laughs> is kind of my hero. Yeah, he is. I, I got to say, because he was like the only people in this movie who were not high school age were I were him and Gabrielle Union. But he was still like 20. She was 25. He looks so much older than 20 in this movie. I remember thinking like watching him like that guy's a high school student. Is he supposed to be like a student teacher or something? But yes, he is so cute and so like you know i almost i almost did the iconoclastic thing with my second answer and said i don't want to date cameron or patrick i want to date michael um that said i'm gonna go and this is more of a bit character than supporting character but i'm going with miss perky because allison janney makes every movie great and like that's you know that's something that was such an icon of this era is like the random teacher character or guidance counselor character or so and so who just shows up for one or two scenes and is completely rando and then we never see them again she was a great execution of that trope i don't know if that is a like you would call that a trope i think it kind of is and she's a great example of it oh yeah no she she absolutely nails her one or two scenes in this and it's gr- I don't know whose decision it was to make her dre- dressed up like an I Love Lucy character. <laughs> Maybe it was to try to cover up Alice and Janney's just powerful vibes. It didn't work. They're still there. <laughs> That's my president. Um, so um, <laughs> best song from the soundtrack. Um, the semi-sonic song, uh, is, is it FNT? Oh, shit, that's, that's what I went to with, yeah, FNT, fascinating new thing. My hot take is that song's better than Closing Time. Yeah. Like, of all the songs that Semisonic is remembered for, everyone remembers Closing Time, I think that's the better song. It is. It's, it's kind of, it's a bop, as the kids don't say anymore. Uh, I, I really upon rewatching the movie that's the one that gets stuck in my head the most even with save ferris and letters to cleo in the mix both of which are earworms too yeah um i i will say like uh, since i don't want to always have the same uh same selections as you my runner up is um i know by save ferris because and personal reason but when i was in the 10th grade i actually sang a really good cover of that for my performing arts class and i had like a full brass section with me that's the other thing i liked about save ferris is monique powell's voice is exactly within my range and it can still be very impressive they have from around the same era a very good cover of come on eileen by dexie's midnight runners it's uh like their stuff is weirdly like a lot of their catalog is absent from a lot of streamers, but mm-hmm. yeah, that's that to me was much a much better pick for the prom scene than the cruel to be cruel to be kind cover, which is just okay. Um, yeah, I love that song. Okay, so on that note, save Ferris or letters to Cleo. I gotta go with save Ferris for that brassy sound. Uh, yeah, my yeah. a good buddy of mine in high school was a trumpet player, and he kind of got me. I became accustomed to a certain standard of living when it came to having a brass section (laughs) in my punk music. And that save Ferris has that sound letters to Cleo is, is great though. It's a very close uh, uh, conversation there. 
I think for me, it's that Letters to Cleo is not as iconic or memorable as just Kay Hanley herself. Mm -hmm. Um, And her voice is fantastic, but I would enjoy her voice on anything, which is why I think like she was chosen to be the singer for the Josie and the Pussycats uh, movie uh, movie band. Like I think of her more honestly for the Josie and the Pussycats songs. Um, And uh, I like the use of the Letters to Cleo songs in the movie, but Save Ferris is more of a test of time band. Um, okay, what is a line reading from this movie that lives rent-free in your head? Um, <laughs> there is one that my brother and I will constantly bring up with each other completely out of context, which is just Heath Ledger's, uh, I can't be seen at Club Skunk. And he gives a, he gives a face afterwards that he doesn't get to pull off a full, like, like he's doing this thing with his hand that's like, nope, I'm not doing it. But it's only mm-hmm. a minute, like. A micro expression that he pulls off before it cuts away from him so that that that's what i can't be seen at club skunk all right so i think my choice is something that a lot of people would say because this movie has permanently ruined a certain brand of car for me if someone says the word tercel i'm like yeah, that's toyota. <laughs> that is a great <laughs> one buy a tercel yeah that's toyota um yeah god that's crumholz like you said like just everything about his character. Um, I also like have a huge appreciation for like that party that party scene because I was young and I didn't realize I didn't understand at the time how parties were shot that you're not shooting with music, of course, because you you know you can't pick that up. And so for him to have to be like dancing and doing a little river dance with no music and he's just giving it his all. I really think like because I'm like he his dancing doesn't fit this music at all, but it kind of. <laughs> The awkwardness of it just adds to the character, but yeah. That, so I'm thinking of buying a Tercel. Yeah, that's a Toyota. I I oh. identify with that character so much just because of the, <laughs> the party anxiety. The like, I'm nervous and I'm excited all at the same time for this. The last party I went to was a Chuck E. Cheese. Like that was me mm-hmm. when I was a teenager. I'm like, I, I hung out with friends all the time, but when there was a party, it was a case of all right, I'll show up. And then my friend and I would get jittery and be like, so we're leaving early. We're going to go sit in a parking lot for three hours. Let's do it. Let's get out of here. Um, yeah. He, he's doing a real Sam Levine when he's getting ready for that party too. Uh, I think <laughs> this was right about the time that they played brothers on freaks and geeks. So I think that might've been a little bit of a Sam Levine impression that he was doing just to amuse himself. Yeah. All right, so um, if you had to make a remake this today, and I'll say I'll I'll pull back on casting all four main roles, but what are just a few recasting choices you would make if you were going to remake this today, um, either on the main role main roles or your Joey, Mr. Stratford, Chastity, Michael? Ah, uh, yeah, that's hard. Um, it's hard for the for the kids because I don't know a lot. I mean, the kid talking about Stranger Things, kids, the um, the older brother character uh the dirtbag guy uh, who is a power ranger oh, um D- dacre montgomery I, thinking, I do not know how to pronounce his name I, I, i'm like this looks like it should be very french Dach or something i don't know i i think i montgomery. I, I heard yeah. one of the other actors call him dacre i think so i don't even know if that's okay. him uh joshing him about his name but he'd make a great joey i think that's that's a character in his wheelhouse if he's not already too old Everybody on Stranger Things mm-hmm. is, you know, 10 years older than their character's supposed to be, which is ridiculous. But, um, <laughs> I, no, oh, go ahead. 
So one person who is, I keep thinking of him as being in the Stranger Things universe. He's not. He was in It, which I I think I always mix up because, um, what's his face? Mike, uh, Vancouver kid. He was in both. Um, Wyatt Olaf, he plays um, Stanley Uris in, uh, in It. And he is also fantastic in the way too short-lived show, um, I am not okay with this. Um, if you look at him, he looks like a young Joseph Gordon-Levitt. He has very similar vibes. Mm-hmm. Um, I He would be my Cameron. That's pretty good, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, talking about people who are in It, I would say Bill Hader would be a great Mr. Stratford. I think that he could give <laughs> weird dad energy to that that he's done in the past that would be valuable. Yeah. Um, I, I like his anger. Uh, I will also add that, um, speaking of the utterly terrible teen show, 13 Reasons Why, one of the only good actors who was in that show is a young actor. He's also one, like we're talking about, you know, actors who are way too old to be in their roles because that show stretched out for so long. Half the actors are like 30, but the only one who is an actual teenager whose name is escaping me now. He played the character of Tyler, um, Devin Druid. Um, Devin Druid, he is, um, yeah, he's got this kind of like intensity, but also naiveness and naivety about him. Um, I think he is, he's handsome, but he's weird handsome. And that's what I think you got out of Patrick. Um, I don't know a lot of, um, like young female actresses. I haven't paid quite enough attention to them uh, these days, but there's this one um, actor uh, that I've talked about before whom I really love. She was in um, she was in This Is Us playing the teenage version of Kate. I think her last name is pronounced Zyle, Hannah Zyle. Um, she is she would be a really great cat. She is so amazing at playing a character who is just super jaded, who's kind of like had the life drained out of her. And if anything, like I would say a modern version, like make Kat more cynical, make her less like, cause Julia Stiles like still has a bit of acuteness about her. Like, fuck it, make her more angry. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's uh, mm-hmm. a little bit of edge wouldn't hurt it. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's say we're making remaking this for 2023, which means, of course, we need some queer representation. Uh, so who's one character you would make into, as uh, as Bianca calls it, a Katie Lang fan? <laughs> um, gee. I mean, it would be easy to do that with Michael. Uh, although, mm. I, you know, the, the aspect of him, you know, in the background wooing Kat's friend is a lot of fun because it does give it that Shakespearean flavor of these are the highborn people having their, you know, relationship problems. Then these are their buddies who are like a soldier and a maid who are having theirs. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you could still do that and just, and just make them two boys. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah. See, I was going to say uh, Mandela. I think like the way she kind of um, plays coy with Michael would be a good opportunity for her to be a lesbian. I do not know how you could resolve that because, like you said, I think their side romance is fantastic. Um, Susan May Pratt is not a great actress. She is in one of my favorite movies, which, um, spoiler alert, next episode, center stage. Um, but she is, she, I think she can play silly, and Mandela is a silly character, but I think it would be better if Mandela were a lesbian. I don't know. Um, 
Because like the problem is everyone else in the in this movie, their existence revolves around a romance. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard. And if you were to say like make someone buy or pan, that's great. But then it just feels like as as someone who longs for more bi representation, if you're gonna have a bi person just to have them date a character of the opposite sex, I'm kind of like Hmm, felt like you just added that nugget in for the sake of queer. Like, we still need queer relationship representation, you know? Mm. Um, who knows? Like, Mr. Stratford being a gay dad might also be a nice touch um, because we don't think of too often gay parents have been considered like, you know, very soft and progressive parents. It would, I would love to see just one portrayal of a strict gay dad. I guess I guess the the dads in Modern Family are kind of strict, but yeah. yeah but there is like, an I'd like there to is see a, a silly gay dad who's a hard though. ass. Yes. All right. So looking at the core cast of main and supporting characters, which were you like most similar to in high school? I mean, I was a lot like Michael. I I was kind of the the forty year old man trapped in a sixteen year old boy's body. <laughs> uh, you know, I that that's that's who i was i had a judd hirsch energy about me um <laughs> but 16 year old judd hirsch i really like that um yeah no it was really popular with the teachers uh they they really mm-hmm. liked the fact that i i seemed like i the kind of guy who would try to get into a conversation with you at a diner you know um but you know other than that i mean a little bit of Cameron. I definitely, I was nowhere near Patrick. I was nowhere near a Joey. Um, <laughs> maybe a little bit of Bogey Lowenstein rolled in. You know, uh, any t- I've only twice in my life had a friend named Nigel, but both times <laughs> uh, we there has been a picture of us with the caption, that must be Nigel with the Brie. Um, I w- that is, that's a rent-free line reading. That is a good one. Uh, yeah, him running around the party freaking out. I There was a party in my parents' house. I'm sure they don't know what a podcast is, so I think we're good. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, there, there was a party that I didn't throw that was in my house. My brother had thrown it, and a lot of people showed up, and I was running around like, this is going to come down on me. Put that down, you know? that I was put that down for the night. Uh, yeah. so I, I sympathize with him in that moment of, no, this really isn't cool. This even if this is revenge for something horrible he did, which I guess is the idea behind it. Uh, this isn't cool. I mean, he started a rumor about Izod's like that's okay. You know what? I'm looking up this actor because he has barely done anything. And he was also in not another teen movie as the attempted slow clapper, mm-hmm. um, which I can't believe I didn't recognize this guy. I really like uh, as Bogey Lowenstein. And in particular, this is, it's technically a line reading. The sound he makes when he picks up the little crystal vase that the cowboys have been spinning into the, oh, like that. I do that noise a lot um, when I'm just stressed to the tits at something. Um, I love uh, him. He's great. Uh, Kyle Keese, I think is his name. Uh, yeah. He uh, he actually appeared at my university doing stand up ah. uh, a couple of times during during my years and before my years there. And uh yeah no it seemed seemed like a fun dude his uh you know it was it was a university show so they do a lot of you know what what are you uh majoring in kind of jokes but a lot of crowd work not a whole lot of you know solid material but somebody screamed out during a lull run bogey and he kind (laughs) of 
he kind of got weak in the knees like oh somebody knows somebody oh. recognized me uh so that was fun <laughs> so whenever i think of uh, that guy I, I think of somebody else screaming run bogey i think you and i were bantering uh, about this on twitter but um he is actually a really good sport for how much uh damage is done to his house in this party that like he could have easily just been like get the fuck out of my house he's a really good sport bogey he is scene, so he's he's well, I he think- might actually be like the secret good guy of the movie. <laughs> I mean, like like I think I said, he's miles away from the girl whose party it was in Can't Hardly Wait because she's having yeah. a, a full psychotic break by the end of the movie. Yeah. Um, so I, I would like, like I said, I tried to be Cat in high school. I really think looking at it, I was a Cameron. I was kind of puppy dog in love with whoever I liked at the time. I was always like trying really hard to make everyone like me, Um, you know, because Cameron, you know, Cameron wants to be liked. Cameron wants everyone to be nice to him. And that's how I was in high school. That said, I probably wasn't quite as cute as Joseph Gordon-Levitt, but, you know, I was I was a good boy. I was a good little boy. Um, All right. Finally, name one iconic outfit or look from this movie. I was really paying attention this time, and as much as I, I will go to bat for Kat's prom look and not Bianca's, uh, that's my personal that opinion. shirt yeah. That was weird. Um, I will say Patrick's outfit when he sings the Frankie Valley tune to her. Uh-huh. <laughs> He's like full Han Solo and Empire Strikes Back with this jacket, and it just looks mm-hmm. great. I mean, half of it is just his vibe sliding down the pole you know, prancing on the steps. He's got something. It's it's Heath, but it's also that outfit. That jacket rules. I wish I could pull something like that off. He is insanely well outfitted in this movie. I was going to say him in black pants and a black tank top covered in paintball splatters, but then I realized I was just incredibly horny. Um, <laughs> I would say um, I legitimately loved Mandela's prom dress. Oh I yeah, I loved it. I thought like it's it was a traditional kind of ode to ode to a Shakespearean play, but it also actually looked like something you could wear to a 1999 prom. Her Susan May Pratt's hair looked really good. Like yeah, everything about it. I think she ended up looking better than Crumholtz in it. But yeah, I kind of for a while was stuck on the idea that I wanted a prom dress that looked like that, and then instead I had an electric green green prom dress that made me look like a ninja turtle <laughs> no yeah. yeah her her dress was that was a great outfit that was and all the girls mm-hmm. had great hair for the prom absolutely julia styles hair in that movie it should have top billing <laughs> um, all right so to conclude our thoughts on 10 things we need to determine a couple things so let's say you're watching this or you're gonna give this to someone to watch for the first time in or uh, you know, watching this in your 30s, what aspects of this movie do you think maybe have and haven't aged? Well, we've already talked about the things that haven't aged well. Let's talk about some of the things that have aged well for you. Uh, probably, probably uh, Kat and Bianca's relationship, you know, the screaming matches aside, there's there are great moments where they actually connect as people. Uh, I think the first glimpse of it is Bianca finally saying, can you forget for one night that you're incredibly wretched and just be my sister? And she hears her out and there is a moment there and that carries on into when they're both like down in the dumps because of what's going on. And she tells her the story of Joey and all of that. It's uh, there are aspects of that conversation that don't age well, particularly the mistakes that you've made in the past kind of thing, shaming her a bit for, for those uh incidents but Mm -hmm. uh that conversation is pretty frank about 
where they are where they are in high school and you know who who they want to be now that they've gone through moments like that so i i enjoyed that quite a bit that was me and my brother when we were that age we had that connection mm, that's very sweet um, yeah, for me, I think just I'll say the writing of women in general, um, because the the whole movie is about like, um, you know, letting letting young women actually spread their wings and make their own decisions, make their own mistakes. You know, Mr. Stratford needs to learn to do it uh, with Kat and and Bianca. Kat needs to learn to do it with Bianca, even like um, like the whole the whole lesson that uh, Patrick learns when courting Kat is that he needs to let her make her decisions. Um, an aspect that I think has aged incredibly well, even though, yes, Kat is embarrassed about it, is the fact that Patrick is like, hey, you are drunk. Let's not make out in my car. Mm -hmm. Like, and I, I think that is just a great little detail about it. Um, and, and even like as much as, yes, Patrick is forgiven incredibly easily. But I think some people misread that scene. They're like, oh, what? He just buys her he just buys her a present and that's it. He buys her a present that showed that he was actually listening to her. And it's not like there's no plot about Kat being a musician or anything. She just says, I'd like to start a band one day. Mm -hmm. I'd like to play music one day. And he remembers that and buys her a guitar. Like I think that actually is a like some people would argue that's an aspect that hasn't aged well. I think that is just like you said about Cameron. I think it shows that Patrick is a very thoughtful character. And so I just think like that's what that's kind of what the message is, is like you have to show that you like her for her. You have to be thoughtful. So, yeah, I think women and the general writing of thoughtfulness in this movie is something that I think has aged incredibly well. Um, so let's say you're getting settling in for a good old physical media marathon. What are two other movies from this era that you would watch with this? Ooh, um, geez. So, uh, almost famous would probably be on that list. Uh, that was another one that love almost famous. It, it similarly gave a lot of, uh, gave a lot of fuel for what things shaped me and my friends as teenagers uh, if it wasn't that, that was the music that a lot of us were listening to, which was our parents' music. Uh, but also just the, the similar, uh, quippiness of it, the, you, you know, that the, the writing of that movie is, it feels very much like, well, this could be a book that we've been assigned for class, or it could be one that we're, you know, reading on our own for fun. And, uh, that, that was Cameron Crowe, you know, that, that was, the way he was for a couple of us was this is the guy whose movies I want to make uh, for me, especially. So that was one. I'm trying to think of another that would fit with this from about the same era. Um, I mean, if uh, if we're talking, if we're talking staying kind of within the genre but not definitely not as good of a movie. Uh, Varsity Blues was on that list just because uh, I was on the football team. So the pressure that they felt in that movie was something that a couple of my friends and I related to. Um, and, and that was just one of those movies that featured all of the people who we knew were going to be big stars. And I don't think most of them were like, uh, Oh, who, who were some of the ladies in that one? Um, uh, Ali Larder and Amy Smart. There both you go. Actresses who kind of turned into sand after 2005. Yeah. Oh, wait, Heroes was more like 2008, but yeah. 
I haven't seen either of them since the butterfly effect, and it says it all that I can't remember which one of them was in the butterfly effect. Yeah, well, hey, the butterfly effect could also be a movie on that list, too. Just uh, that, yeah, doesn't age well, but at the time, that was that was such a, you know, Dawn of DVD rental kind of movie, the one that you, you had to watch oh, this. Yeah. You gotta watch the eight different endings that are all basically the he same He strangles ending. himself in the womb! Yeah, oh. and well, and then they had like three or four alternate endings after that that were all basically the original theatrical ending, but does he turn around? Does he not turn around? Does he smile? Does he not smile? And it's like, okay, you are overestimating the type of things that we need to see in the special features menu on this DVD. But that was gold for, for acting kids and movie making kids. <laughs> yeah. So for me, my uh, physical media marathon, another movie that I would put in with this, um, it's maybe two years older than, or two years after this movie is Sugar and Spice. I was going to go with Bring It On. That's a very obvious example, but Sugar and Spice, which is direct or written and directed by Lona Williams, who writer and director of um, of Drop Dead Gorgeous. Um, probably was like marketed a bit more mainstream than uh, Drop Dead Gorgeous because they were trying to pig- piggyback, I think, off of the cheerleading aspect of Bring It On. But it probably is the most like similar in terms of the very biting one-liners, shit that was permanently put into my brain. Um, there's there's a couple D words in there, a couple of things that we're gonna want to ignore, just like in this movie. But um, and great like young great. Uh, performances from young actors very very cynical like this movie so i think again that whole testament to the last like truly cynical days of teen of teen movies um and then i would also like um i have huge uh justice for american pie kind of feelings i think american pie is maybe not remembered as fondly as it should be or like as i actually feel like american pie is a very important movie um when you think about how it brought the gross out comedy back um and then you know became a really weird franchise that like again we're hearkening back to weird ass national lampoon shit where it's just completely lost its identity but um i i love american pie but i also like that it shows like young men trying to figure out how to make the right decision about things and a lot of them eventually do come to the right decision about things and i think american pie actually like yes there is you know what would what, what one would consider se- sexual exploitation in that movie i'm not going to pretend oh, that's a perfect aspect of it but there are also some aspects of that movie that i think are downright beautiful and so um american pie is on the more sincere end of things and sugar and spice is on the more cynical end of things oh. and then you cap it off with 10 things uh can i add one yeah. more uh, i'd like to substitute sure. one more uh the faculty bringing back the kevin williamson those count Ooh. as teen movies and that one was absolutely that was yeah. a big one. Um, not to say that any of those characters are particularly lovable, but that's something we talked about earlier. Is this? It wasn't necessary for all of those characters to be morally perfect. Uh, all of them had flaws, and that's what those those flaws were. What fueled the plot of the movie, and which one, you know, who among them was an alien, and what, and uh, how is their personality deviating because of it? So that was a lot of fun. Mm. So lastly, if you liked 10 Things, what are some other pieces of media, not just movies, but maybe some albums, TV shows, bands, books that they should check out? Ah, geez. Um, well, I mean, I 
I have mentioned it a couple of times on here, but I was a big Boy Meets World head, even like in the later seasons of that show when they were in high school and college. Totally. I think that those later seasons got a bad rap because everybody remembers that show as like, oh, he was a little boy by the time it started. And by the time it was over, they were all like 40 years old. But it's it's got very similar writers. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of the writers from Boy Meets World, once it ended in like 04, moved directly to the 10 Things I Hate About You show. Uh, it has a similar mm. vibe to it. And that was that was really the high school era that my brain wants my high school era to be, even though I know that it was a fictionalized version of it. But, mm-hmm. you know, there there's an era, there's a, uh, a sincerity, a, uh, you know, kind, kind of nakedly uh, sentimental streak through Boy Meets World and 10 Things I Hate About You that I feel is similar. Yeah. I agree. I uh, So I have a musical recommendation. I would uh, look at both of Say Ferris's albums. Their first album in particular, that is the one that has the Come On Eileen cover. Uh, their second album, Modified, is a bit more radio rocky, but it's still, I think, a really good uh, a really good album. Uh, and then in terms of a TV show, I'm going to bring it back to a previous uh, episode that you were on, and I'm going to say Undeclared. Oh, yeah. You've got the Crumholtz connection. If you can... Uh, if you can piece together and figure out the correct order in which to watch it, um, I think it's just a great example of uh, teenagers who perhaps aren't as clever as the characters in this kind of figuring life out. But again, a great example of like, the characters get downright really unlikable at times. And it's a great example of how shitty young adults can be. um, And kids who really aren't written that way anymore. Um, And also, you know, Dave Crumholtz is kind of a great example of this in 10 Things, but when not every young actor on my screen had to be incredibly good looking. Yeah. Yeah, you that's know? true. Like, like Seth Rogen gave hope to, uh, gave hope to many guys. Um, uh, have you seen the new movie or the new series that he is in with Carly Gallo, by the way, uh, 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 platonic? Uh, no. Carly Gallo is not a lead in it. She's a supporting character, but. Yeah, it's it's great. I like look forward to new episodes every week. It's fantastic. I'll have to look that one up because it sounded like fun to me. Yeah. All right. So, Kyle, thank you for being with uh, us here on the first episode of Tales from the Rec Room. I feel like it, you know, things have picked up without missing a beat. If you want to get want to once again plug where we can find you on uh, on the old internets, now is the time. Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Kyle Martinak. Um, on Letterboxd at Kr Martinak. I'm pretty sure. Um, and, uh, you can always find me writing big, long pieces about movies that nobody remembers at media-sandwich.com or, uh, possibly if I, if I get the podcast up and rolling again soon, you'll hear me talking about, uh, movies, video games, comics, uh, TV shows at the media podcast, media sandwich podcast, uh, wherever you find a podcast, any outlet you can find it on. Awesome. Well, as for me, I've been your host, Brie Rohde, and you can find me online at prune underscore underscore Tracy, or follow this podcast at Rec Room Tales on Twitter. If you were already following the Peak Show account on Twitter, we have just changed handles because no one had Rec Room Tales. Suck it. Uh, new episodes come out on Thursdays all during the summer, and you can join us back in the Rec Room next week with Rachel Kellogg for Center Stage. Center Stage.